Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Our Polar Flight, published in 1925 and written by Roald Amundsen and Lincoln Ellsworth. This story is a fantastic recount of the early exploration undertaken by the book's authors and their team. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to iTunes listener Milksat for your lovely review on iTunes US. I'm glad the podcast puts you to sleep 100% of the time. Amber from the UK. Thank you for your lovely message through the website. I'm glad you struggle to remember past the intro. Also, thank you to Brie for your lovely message through the website. I'm so glad your boyfriend's daughters also enjoyed the podcast. Please say hello to Blue and Pepper and thank them also for listening. As always... Thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors and everyone else who took the time to share a message or leave a review during the week. If I missed your review or message, please let me know via the website. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone who needs it and its support from listeners via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out those episodes. So thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors. If you would like to become a sponsor or patron, please visit the website boyytosleep.com. And if you find the podcast beneficial, please be sure to subscribe as it really helps out. And of course... Share the podcast with a friend and leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Our Polar Flight by Roald Amundsen and Lincoln Ellsworth Part 1. The Expedition through the air to 88 degrees north. The day the brothers Wright rose and flew, the curtain went up on a new era in the history of mankind. Many were certain that they could see great possibilities opening up for mankind in general, and particularly for them in their own branch of work but few, I think, saw such possibilities of making a full and complete change in his work 
as the Polar Explorer. What he has tried for years to accomplish would now be possible for him to achieve in a very short space of time. Century after century, and he worked with his primitive means, the dog, the sledge. Day after day, he had exerted himself with all his craft, all his intelligence, and all his will, yet had only covered a few miles over the vast ice desert. What courage, what tenacity had been shown in the fight against cold, hunger, and hardships. What a brilliant example of sacrifice and self-denial. Year after year, shut up in a tiny little ship, surrounded by the same people, equipped with only the most necessary things. He had worked up to this time through the greatest of difficulties, through the hardest tests, cold and darkness. And now, all at once, in one moment, the whole of this was to be changed. Cold and darkness should be dispersed, becoming warmth and light instead. For the complete and troublesome journey should be changed now to a speedy flight. In truth, the possibilities were great. No rationing, no hunger or thirst. Only a short flight. As in a dream, seen as a faraway possibility, there was ignited that day a small spark, which should quickly blaze up to a mighty fire, and in the course of a few years, become one of our most important means of communication. Emerging from its swaddling clothes, flying freed itself and went into its cradle when Blerio flew across the channel. It was then speedily led by the world's war through its childhood, where it, developing with the years, slowly or quickly, who can say, was led into youth, into manhood. What the possibilities would become, it was difficult to say, but one had to be satisfied with what was there, Flying's childhood. The young, inexperienced birds leaving their nests show us an example. Some will hurt their wings, others will break them altogether, but it is just as certain that, just as they do, so will mankind also succeed in reaching his goal in the world of flying. As I learned of Blerio's flight, I knew at once that the time had come to think of using the air to help the polar expeditions. Certainly human power and skill had overcome and conquered vast tracts of this mighty unknown whiteness, but enormous tracts remained unexplored. Tracks which now could be reached from the air. My thoughts turned especially to the enormous area in the Arctic, which until now had withstood every attempt. Certainly Nansen, 
the Duke of the Abruzzi and Perry, had drawn lines through the unknown doing great and brilliant work, but colossal and unknown tracks still lay in front of them unexplored. Should we have had to continue exploration in the same old manner we should have had to wait many years before our knowledge had become complete? If one had used the word impossible, it seems absolutely reasonable to have used it in connection with the exploration of this immense ice desert. But it seems that the word impossible has been scratched out of the dictionary of mankind. How often have we seen the impossible made possible? What was impossible yesterday is an easy matter today. Blerio's flight across the channel showed me the conquering of the impossible when one, in the year 1909, equipped with the Fram for a trip to the Arctic, I had a conference with one of the most esteemed aviators of the day. He declared himself as willing to go with me, but it never came off, a fact which was probably for the best, as in the case of both parties, it was put off on economical grounds. I mention this in order to draw attention to the fact that the idea of exploring the polar regions from the air is not a recent plan. I have been attacked from many sides because I have, quote, stolen the plans of others, this seems to me childish and scarcely worth talking about, but many people take childish things for grim earnest if they have not a closer knowledge of the circumstances. Therefore, these few words. In 1914, I managed to get sufficient means to buy my first aeroplane for use in Arctic exploration. As an independent means of transport in those vast tracks, it certainly could not be used where all circumstances seemed to be against it, but in conjunction with a mothership would be of invaluable service. It was therefore my intention to take it on board with the Fram, which at the time was ready to begin its journey north and there to use it in the best way possible. What immense areas would it not be possible to observe in an Arctic trip, if one only was able to rise a few thousand yards? By what I had seen of the ice, I was certain one could always find flat places to rise from and to land on. But later experience showed me that it takes an aviator to express an opinion about landing conditions amidst polar ice, and not an Arctic explorer. What the second considers to be a flat plateau can be absolutely useless in the opinion of the first. My first aeroplane was a farm and biplane mounted on skis, we scarcely could have got any benefit from this. Later years' experience shows me that. The war broke out in the meantime and 
put a stop to that part of my program. But then, as so often later in life, I experienced the fact that an apparent obstacle often had the opposite effect. Flying technique at that time took enormous steps forward. The child shot up, grew and learned to move on its own account. In 1921, the world's record for the longest sojourn in the air reached about 27 hours on a junker machine in America. It was a monoplane built entirely of aluminium and therefore specially suitable for working in the polar regions. Sun, cold, snow and rain would not hurt it. I was living at the time in Seattle, Washington, where Maud lay, being equipped for a new journey north. As soon as that news reached me, my decision was made. Such a machine I must have at all costs. With such an apparatus, the impossible would become almost possible. The door to the unknown seemed to me to be the opening, but my hopes were dashed and the door remained locked for many years still. The machine at last was obtained and Lieutenant Omdul appointed to be its pilot. In May 1922, we decided as soon as we had learned to know the machine to fly from the works in New York over America to Seattle. The engine failed as we were over the town of Marion in Pennsylvania and we had to make an irritating forced landing in the oil fields. The machine was entirely ruined A new one was hastily ordered, sent through America by rail just in time to be taken on board the Maud. Simultaneously, the well-known American Curtis Aeroplane Factory put at our disposal a small reconnoitering machine. Therefore, as the Maud sailed in 1922, she was completely equipped not only for a trip through the ice, but also for exploration from the air. The Curtis machine should be used for reconnoitering and a company moored all the time. I promised myself endless results from it, whilst Maud went on right into the ice and explored the sea, ice and air, Omdul and I went ashore at Wainwright on Alaska's north coast from whence we intended to trek as far as possible into the unknown territory to the north of that coast, but everything went to pieces. On account of the stormy summer and autumn, Omdul and I could not leave the place as arranged but must build a house and spend the winter there. In May 1923, we were ready for flight, but already on our first trial flight, the junker broke the hull of its underpart in landing and became so damaged that all hope of repairing it had to be abandoned. Thus, we gathered no experience. Things went somewhat better, however, 
with the little machine on board the moored. A wireless telegram announced that it had been twice in the air with Oddal as pilot and Wisting as observer, but it was crushed in the second landing. So far as I understand, these two flights had not been of long duration. Therefore, it was scarcely possible to have studied anything of the immense area. It is, however, certain that these two were the first to fly over the actual drift ice. Thus we hear from them, for the first time, of the great difficulties which flying in with this district presents. It was impossible from the air to determine the condition of the ice, they said. It appeared to be absolutely flat, but it was quite different as results showed. The prospects now were not any brighter. On my return to Seattle, I had only my two empty hands and a ruined aeroplane which nobody would have. I did not, however, give up, but continued to work in order to get a new equipment. 1924 passed up, until now, without luck. In September of the same year, I went to the Aero Club of Norway and proposed that they should work with me. I was received with open arms. Whilst they should try to do what they could at home, I should travel to America to see what I could do there. I had already held some lectures on the subject, and sat one morning in my hotel deeply engrossed in reckoning out how long it would take me with my earnings to pay my creditors and start a new flight. The result was not hardening. I found out that if nothing unforeseen happened, I should be clear by the time I was 110 years old. But see, the unexpected did happen just then. The telephone rang and a voice said, Are you Captain Amundsen? Yes, I am. Well, continued the voice, I am Lincoln Ellsworth. That is how I became acquainted with the man to whom I should later owe so very, very much. The Aero Club will certainly agree with me when I say that without his assistance, the expedition could hardly have taken place. It is not my intention by this to belittle the great and excellent work which the club did. In deep thankfulness will I always remember the names of the three members of the board with whom I came into direct touch. The President, Dr. Rolf Tomlinson, and the two members, Dr. Raystad and Major Swear. Thanks to their energetic work, together with the state's kindly aid, the expedition was soon ready to start. During my stay in America, all the winter, the entire organising of the work fell on these gentlemen, but the technical part of the arrangements fell on first lieutenants of the Royal Norwegian Navy, Hjalmar Ryazer Larsen, 
Hjalmar Ryazer Larsen had already taken part in the spring attempt to get the expedition going, so he was quite familiar with everything. It was therefore both with gladness and with trust that I was able to telegraph him $85,000, James W. Ellsworth's gift, begging him to order the two seaplanes. From this moment, Ryazer Larson got permission for leave and was able to give himself up entirely to the expedition. As a flying man, he is so well known by every person in the land that it is superfluous and stupid to mention more. But he has dozens of other notable qualities which I need not enumerate and which made him specially qualified to fill his difficult post. With such an assistant, a difficult trip becomes for the leader a pleasant and light effort. He was assisted in his work by First Naval Lieutenant Leif Dietrichson and Flight Lieutenant Oscar Omdahl, both these gentlemen had been in the spring fiasco and thus knew all the details. It is quite unnecessary to talk about Dietrichson. His skill as a flyer is recognised by all. His bravery and resolution will stand out clearly later in this record. With his light outlook on life, his glad smile and happy nature... He was an invaluable comrade on the flight. Omdal is known. If things went with him or against him, it was all the same. Nothing seemed to depress him. He stood beside me in my two unhappy attempts in 1923 and 1924. And you can believe that it took a real man to show courage and keenness in a third attempt. But Omdul did not disappoint me. So long as you don't give in, he said to me, you shall always find me ready. He is a marvellous being. He seems to have several limbs more than the rest of us. He moves slicker and thinks quicker. It is impossible to depress him. With three such men, I knew that the technical part of the expedition was in the very best hands. The objective of the expedition was to track in as far as possible over the unknown stretch between Spitsbergen and the Pole in order to find out what is there or what isn't there. It was not only to substantiate evidence of land, but to make a geographical research. This substantiation was as equally important as learning the composition of the land. From Nansen's The Duke of the Abruzzi's and Peary's Discoveries, we had certainly good reason to believe that no land existed in that part of the Arctic Ocean but our knowledge must be built on certainties, not on beliefs. Modern exploration insists on certainties. 
how miserably our maps have suffered in this district just on account of beliefs. Land had been put down instead of ocean, ocean instead of land, all on account of these same beliefs. More accidents have been caused by this than one would think, and many people have lost their lives. Apart from this, we hoped to be able to make a number of meteorological observations which, even although they would not bring us many rich scientific results, would still give us interesting enlightenment. In the end, we hoped, as at first, to harvest great and rich experiences which could be to us and to others of the greatest help when we once should be ready to start for the long-arranged flight from Spitsbergen to Alaska. I lay special weight on the fact that I hope our experiences will be found of use by others. I do not belong to that class of explorer who believes that the North Pole is a place for himself alone. My outlook shows that I have an absolutely opposite disposition. The more the better, say I. Rather, let all of us be at the same time at the same place. Nothing stimulates like competition. Nothing encourages exploration more. How would it appear if, for example, a man-made public his intention to fly across the polar regions, but for some unforeseen reasons could not accomplish it? Should everyone therefore stay away from the place so long as the first one was alive? It seems to me an absurdity which is little in keeping with the sporting spirit one would expect to reign in these regions. He who comes first to the mill and gets his grist first milled, says an old proverb. I hope to be able to make an attempt to fly from Spitsbergen to Alaska next summer. I must not, however, declare this to be my private ground, but I wish on the contrary that many will go there too. All the experience which I have stands at their disposal. The trend of a wireless telegram from Dr. Sverdrup on the moor in the summer of 1924 intimated that large tracts of land were not likely to be found north of Alaska. This theory he has based after careful, tired observations. I have great faith in Sverdrup. I have never met a cleverer man than he, in his own line, but I feel absolutely certain that he will agree with me that one should go further in and explore the place. Without having actually seen it, one cannot substantiate the evidence. Our hope to get right along to the pole was very small. For that, our radius of action was too limited. Apart from that, I had not any great interest in reaching the pole. As I had always regarded Peary 
as being the first on the spot. Our objective was only, therefore, to cover the great distance by flying over it and over the great area we were exploring. On the 9th of April, all the long and many preparations were finished, and we left Tromso at 5 in the morning. The expedition had two ships, the motor ship Hobby, which should bring two seaplanes up to Spitsbergen, and the Navy's transport ship Fram, which the state had placed at our disposal for the undertaking. On board the Hobby were Ryaiza Larsen, Dietrichsen, Omdahl, Burge, the photographer, and the Rolls-Royce mechanic Green. On board the Fram, Captain Hagarup, the second-in-command Lieutenant Torgelson, Ice Pilot Ness, Dr. Matheson, Director of the Pisserverken Schultz-Froland, with two mechanics, Fute and Zinsmeyer, the journalists Ram and Wharton, the meteorologist Dr. Björkness, the guide Colwagen, also Devolds, the cook Olsen, sailmaker Roan, Horgan, the chemist Zapf, Lincoln Ellsworth, and myself. This may appear almost unbelievable, but that part of the journey was regarded by us as one of the most anxious. It was still early in the year and the fairway between Norway and Spitsbergen was anything but safe for two smacks like ours. The Fram is a midsummer boat intended for an ice-free sea, sunny and calm. But in the month of April, one must not reckon with these three factors. One would be much cleverer to expect lots of ice, no sun, and heavy storms, and for that Fram is not a suitable ship. Hobby was more of an ice ship and would in general plough her ways as well as any other but this was an extraordinary occasion. The tremendous cases which the flying boats were packed in had no other place to lie but on deck and in consequence of this hobby, became in very much truth not much of a sea ship. The ubiquitous prophet had foretold her death and her sinking, and I must say that I was almost inclined to agree with him when I saw the big boxes lifted in the air. After leaving Tromso, Hobby had already given up trying to be a boat. She looked like a mass of gigantic cases, which was wandering along over the sea. The arrangements were that both ships should keep together in order to be of mutual assistance and cheer. It is always comforting in the loneliness of the sea to be cheered by the near presence of another ship. Assistance too, we might have both been in need of. It was a dark unpleasant night as we left Tromso. A foreign film photographer 
who accompanied us to Spitsbergen, showed his spirit by operating his camera under all conditions and filming for all he was worth. Just outside Scarrow Sound, we got into tremendous snowstorms and the meteorologists at the same time announced that the storm center was in the west. I decided, along with the Fram's captain, Hagarup, that it would be advisable to go into Scarrow Sound, anchor there and wait. The meteorologists thought that the bad weather would be of a short duration. We signaled to Hobby, we shall anchor at Scarrow, after which we steered towards the land. We lost Hobby in a snow shower. At 11.45am, we anchored and expected Hobby to arrive soon. Frequent blasts amidst thick snowfalls made the atmosphere impenetrable. We waited in vain for our comrade. At 4 o'clock p.m., the storm center passed and we set off again. We passed close to Fuglio, peering and glancing into all the creeks and inlets looking for hobby, but there was nothing to be seen. We understood, therefore, that she must have misread our signal and steered in a direct course. In spite of the officers and the men's unchanging kindness and willingness, the journey was not altogether pleasant. We were packed as tightly together as it was in any way possible to pack human beings, and then as the boat began to roll, so the air got thicker and thicker. I refer to the inside air, and what, under normal conditions, would have been perpendicularly hanging things, such as towels, coats, etc., all stood right out from the wall in such a way that people began to feel themselves a little uncomfortable. I say uncomfortable, for nobody would ever be seasick. Now I have been at sea for over 30 years, but I have yet to meet the person who will admit to being seasick. Oh no, not at all. Seasick. Far from it. Only a little uncomfortable in the stomach or the head. In my diary I believe I have written that there were a number of seasick people on board, but I ask all the people to excuse me if I have been mistaken. I am also very frank in my diary that I remark that I too am not so sure of myself, but that remark was presumably only meant for my private eye. The night of the 10th was particularly unpleasant. Zapf, Ellsworth and I lay in the dining room. Zapf reclined in a corner of the sofa looking very pale, but insisting that he had never felt better in his life. Ellsworth and I lay in our sleeping bags, and should I judge from the sounds and movements I heard and saw, I should be bold enough to say that we were in the same condition of well-being as Zapf. 
Everything that could tear itself free did. The chairs in particular appeared to have taken full possession of the dining saloon. The tricks they performed during the night were absolutely unbelievable. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you're feeling a little drowsy, but if you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.